So, um, yeah, whenever you're ready. <laughs> Not live from Verso Studios in the new renovated Westport Library. It's oh, brother, not a, another podcast with me, Trace Burroughs, and me, Migs Burroughs. Um, and uh, so this is our second um, away from home uh, video. This is by Zoom. So if the audio is a little wonky, it's because we're doing this by Zoom. I have no idea what the video quality is, but uh, we're into the, well, it's April 3rd, so we're into the, I don't know, third week of the virus crisis, but we thought to get away from that, maybe we'd just go back and dig deeper into some of our torrid, sorted, not torrid, sorted memories <laughs> growing up in Westport. Uh, had you thought of any new? I was thinking of jobs that we've had. We, did we talk about? Do you want to talk about any any of the jobs you've had growing up? Oh Jesus! I had seriously. I had over a hundred jobs between the ages of sixteen and really? I don't know twenty four. Because um, I remember um, whatever. So like yeah, and most of them were in restaurants. But I can't um, trying to remember. Oh, the weirdest job I guess it's not that weird. It just I worked for the Danbury Mint in Westport which is in the old Glendinning building. Now there's a finance, I forget the name of the place. Yeah. Yeah. What's his name? It has this big financial company there. Um, so our, my job along with like eight other guys, my age were to check silver ingots. These are things they'd sell on TV guide or wherever. <laughs> and on these silver ingots were portraits of the presidents of the United States. And we had to check with rubber gloves to see if there's any fingerprints and if, and if there was, I guess we put them in another box. We did that all day. Like, just look at it, mm. put them back in a little sleeve thing and put them in a, in a crate, which was very heavy. And so we're doing this all day. And I remember there was a picture of one of the presents. It was so poorly, the artist who ever did it was so poorly rendered that we broke up hysterical laughter. <laughs> this is absolutely, look at this thing. This is, doesn't look like Jimmy Carter or whatever. Right. Jimmy Carter. Look at this thing. So... We're laughing. We go back to doing what we're doing. We got called up to um, to the office, and um, the, the woman there said, um, "We take our things very seriously." Community <laughs> had no sense of humor about the, I, you know, she didn't like us laughing at the uh, the art, and uh, so you know, I was scolded. I think yeah. another guy was scolded as well, and. Um, that was basically it. All, all my other jobs were at a lot of restaurant jobs where I washed dishes. I had a couple of jobs in the kitchen where I was the dessert guy or something. And then, uh, so that was really, um, well, my, right now. how about you? Yeah. Well, I didn't have that many jobs, but the one, one of the more memorable ones was I, I was washing dishes at the, at the old players tavern. This, I think I was in high school or just maybe one year out of college. So, and at the time, I don't know how many people realize this, people even remember the Players Tavern remembered as this rock band and this kind of, you know, roadhouse type of place. Well, when I was doing it, it was like Sardis. People came in limousines from New York. Well, first of all, the plays at the Playhouse in those days were very upscale plays with, with movie stars and Broadway stars. And these, these plays would tour the country so you'd have people like Shelley Winters and Elliot Gould and all these, you know, you know, semi mostly famous uh, people from movies and whatnot. And uh, and 
and they attracted celebrities from New York and they'd show up in their limousines and they'd have dinner at the Players Tavern, which is this really upscale. Uh, now it's, it, it's Positano's um, currently, but it, anyway, so I was downstairs in the basement with this other kid, the two of us washing dishes and we got the, the worst grief because I, there was high school kids I went to that were actually younger than me that were waiters. And of course they just, you know, gave us a hard time and lorded over us because they were waiters and they could go upstairs and we were down in this basement. But um, two, two incidents that were, were kind of interesting was, so the, the ladies room door was right next to the dish room door. They were almost indistinguishable except for some little tiny ladies room thing on it. And one day, uh, one night, I'm down there and the door, our door swings open and nobody ever came down. Well, the waiters came. Jane Mansfield walks in to the dish room and she has, you know, this cleavage. She's just like a, she's just what she, Jane Mansfield, like a cartoon of Jane Mansfield, except it's her with a chihuahua in her cleavage. And, and at the time I had really long hair. And of course our parents gave us grief for our hair and everything. And, she walked into the dish room. We turned around and we're start. We're speechless. I mean, she we couldn't. And she just looked at me and said, "Oh, I love your hair." And then she said, "Where's the ladies' room?" And we told her. But anyway, so I couldn't wait to get home to tell mom and dad that Jane Mansfield liked my hair, even though they didn't. And the other one, the other incident from that player's tavern was. So we go in early to to set up dishes and wash, make sure I don't know, clean up the dish room and get ready. And we heard noise upstairs and there was never anybody upstairs until five o'clock and this was like four so we heard some noise upstairs and we we crept upstairs to see what was going on turns out a little backstory is marino sullivan who was the the mother of mia farrow and prudy farrow um was in in a play that week she was very famous at the time i think she was in she was in a lot of famous movies but Mia Farrow at the time was probably 13 years old and her daughter Prudence and the Beatles wrote a song about her dear Prudence later. But, um, so they were just hanging around and anyway, they decided to go and break into the player's tavern or walk in. I don't know. There must've been an open door and they were, they were robbing the cash register. So when we, my friend and I walked upstairs and looked, we see these two little girls teenage girls with the cash register drawer opening and they're just they're just rifling through it and grabbing cash from the cash register um which pleased us because we hated our bosses they gave us such a hard time and um so we didn't say anything we just sort of waved and, and me mia farrow was nobody we didn't know she was just somebody's daughter she wasn't the mia farrow we know today she was right. just a 13 year old girl later i realized who she was and, um, so, so what, what about the thing with the hair? Someone wanted you to go upstairs and meet Elliot Gould or something. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that was another thing. Yeah. So Elliot Gould was in a play and somebody came downstairs and said to my dish room and said, Oh my God, you've got to come. Elliot Gould's here and he looks just like you. You're like twins. It's unbelievable. And, um, this was somebody from the playhouse. So they dragged me out of the dish room and I'm all smelly and wearing an apron and whatever rubber gloves and they dragged me backstage into the green room where his green where his dressing room is and they kind of opened the door and just pushed me in there like there's going to be some amazing moment and he just looks at me and goes can i help you 
and I just said, I, they told me to come here because supposedly I look like you. And he just looked at me and then went back to drinking or whatever he was doing. It had no impact on him whatsoever. And yeah. it was the end of that. It's humiliating. <laughs> we were going to talk about last time Alan Abel. Do you want to get into that? Oh, yeah. Well, you have more Alan Abel, but my only experience with Alan Abel, uh, did we talk let about me, this? Let me explain yeah. a little bit for people. Oh, sure. Yeah, please. I just, I just Googled it before we got on. So Alan Abel was a prankster who did all kinds of pranks back starting in the late 50s and got on a lot of television shows, was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson many times. And here's a few of his pranks. One of it one of them was um, he posed as a golf pro and taught Westinghouse executives how to use ballet positions to improve their game. <laughs> thing. He started the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. And um, oh, yeah. the mission was to clothe naked animals throughout the world. And Buck Henry, the famous comic yeah. on Saturday Night Live and lots of movies, um, appeared on television and like as part of his hoax. That's right. Yeah. And they put, yeah. everyone believed it. It wasn't, it wasn't like a wink, wink. They thought this was a real deal. It was a real thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, he did the Watergate uh, scandal. Abel hired an actor to post his deep throat, did a press conference for 150 reporters. Uh, some guy offered, a, you know, he's getting book offers right there. Um, one time Abel in 1979 faked his own death with a heart attack near a Sundance ski lodge, had a fake funeral director collect his belongings and a woman posing as his widow notified the New York Times. Crazy stuff. And he's the one. only living, he's the only, at the time, was the only living person to have an obituary in the New York Times. And they were so humiliated that he got away with that. Oh. Yeah. So there's a lot more. I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, I'll just go say one more. Um, Omar's School for Beggars was a fictional school oh. for professional panhandlers. Oh, and the other, another one he got a lot of attention for. He stayed, Idi Amin at the time was this tyrannical dictator in Haiti, I think. Unless it was in some African country. Anyway, he staged Idi Amin's wedding at the Plaza Hotel. He got an Idi Amin lookalike, and the press was all over it. And they, I think the New York Times was duped again, and the front page headlines was Idi Amin gets married at Plaza Hotel. Yeah. So, so what did you do for him? Well, I was a drummer, and he was a drummer. And so he connected with me in that way. And he had some drumming pedal mechanism he wanted me to try out that he invented. It wasn't very practical. But I said, gee, if you have any stunts you're doing, you know, I'll help you out with them. Like, Because I had done stunts. I had done Guinness Book Record things. So he, one of his stunts was picketing some insurance company in Westchester. I forget what we were picketing about. And the next stunt, he says, I want you to go on the Phil Donahue show. <laughs> now, at that time, there were terrorists in the, this is in the like, early oh, 80s. Yeah. They were usually hijacked airplanes and this kind of thing um, and took people high, you know, and, as prisoners. So he wanted me to dress up as an, a terrorist, I right? forget from which country, and storm in there with a couple of other terrorists oh, and, great. I don't know, kidnap someone or, or <laughs> make a stance or a proc proclamation. And I said, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get killed, you know, like, uh, before I leave the studio, you know, people will, you know, kill me. So, um, I, I refused it. That was the only other stunt he, he asked me to do. He, he enlisted me for one, one, and I never got a picture of it, or if I did, I lost it, but he, he was going to give a talk at Hyde Park in London and claim that he had, uh, an alien, the head of an alien, 
And um, and I don't know why he picked me to do this. I mean, I guess he just wanted it on the cheap and I didn't charge him because it was so much fun. But he wanted me to make an alien head, a paper mache alien head, you know, the kind of typical weird little Gumby head that aliens were thought to have. And I labored over this thing and, you know, it was decent, but it looked like a fifth grade project, a paper mache project. And uh, he gave this talk and held up his head, sort of like you would, you know, if you chopped off somebody's head and held it up and, and claimed in Hyde Park. And maybe from a distance it, it went over, but he, he sent me a newspaper clipping of, uh, of them covering that. So that was kind of a fun thing to know that, you know, I'd help, helped a little bit. Um, speaking of terrorism, this is totally off the, and I, you probably maybe too young to remember, because I was only like, I don't know, 10 years old. This is in the mid 50s. Westport actually has the distinction, I think, of having the very first uh, terrorist in the world to blow up a plane. And it was a Westport friends of oh, our parents. I remember that. His name was Julian Frank. So if you're listening, you can go, not him, he's dead. But <laughs> Google uh, terrorist, Westport, Connecticut, Julian Frank plane on bomb or whatever. He, he made a bomb. He was a friend of our parents. I mean, they used to come to our house, apparently. Right. And, and he made a bomb and put it in his briefcase. And I guess he was, he was so much in debt and embarrassed and his business was whatever. And, and he blew up a plane. He committed suicide by blowing up a TWA plane. And, you know, 110 people died, including himself. Uh, so it was an act of terrorism, and, and Westport naturally, you know, has to be first in everything. <laughs> so we, it's, another fe- it's another feather we can put in our cap. <laughs> As a little kid, I was so terrified by that story. I just thought it was so, you know, just creepy, you know. It just creeped yeah. me completely, I remember. To kill that. all those people just to get rid of your own troubles. Uh, anyway, it was, it was startling. And I, I remember exactly where I was. I was in the library, the old library, which was where Starbucks is now and upstairs studying or reading or something. And somebody came running into the room going, Oh my God. Cause he had a daughter in my class, I think anyway. And the big thing of so-and-so died in a plane crash. And then it came out later. Um, you, you want to talk about um, when you were, I guess you were in your twenties when you went to London and you got arrested and all that. Yeah, well, it's such a long story, but the, 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 the short one was that dad had a friend that, you know, he played poker with or something. Actually, no, what was the guy's name that did the Yellow Submarine? Um, Al oh, Brodax. Oh, yeah, Al Brodax. Yeah. Al Brodax. So I don't know if he was working on Yellow Submarine at the time, but anyway, he had connections with the Beatles, and I wanted to go to London to just be, experience that scene and the rock and roll scene. And... He, I don't know how it came about, but any Al Brodux got me a ticket, one ticket to the command performance of Hard, Di- uh, no, of Help, the movie Help, at the London Palais, at the Piccadilly Circus. I think it was the, the movie theater in Piccadilly Circus. So this was a command performance hosted by the Queen of England and the, you know, Princess and Prince and whoever they were at the time, Prince Charles, and he wasn't married at the time, but uh, and Princess Margaret, who was his sister and the Beatles. So they were in the reception line. They would have been at, at this movie. I had this ticket. It cost me maybe $50 at the time. This is 1965. So it was probably several hundred dollars in today's money. Anyway, the, the two weeks before the event, 
and I won't get into the gory details, but I got arrested. I was trespassing on a house that happened to be owned by the queen. So I was trespassing on crown property. I got arrested with a bunch of other derelicts who were sleeping in that house. We got sent to a prison 50 miles outside of London. We got our heads shaved. Prison uniform. It was a real prison. It wasn't like a holding cell. Anyway, and spent, uh, I think it was a month there. And I had no idea when I was getting out. And it turns out, I got out the day after the the ticket, the day after the event. So I missed the event, but I had an amazing experience in prison. I mean, amazing in terms of, oh, and it also in a way saved my life because I was hurt. They had very rough physical uh, PT, you know, what do they call it? Physical, not therapy, but calisthenics that they forced you to do. And I fell on my tailbone at one of these and chipped my tailbone, which turned into a cyst, which turned into a, horribly painful thing and that got me out of the uh, draft after going out of vietnam so i guess so i can tell my draft story yeah um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like i did you know for for people out there who because i've told this story to some people thought like that was horrible you should have been a patriot but oh, yeah. um it was it was a fraudulent war um mcnamara who was the secretary of defense on his deathbed said it was all fake we should never have gone it was a real war but it was based on fake um Bay of Tonkin event or whatever, yeah. you know, so it was based on false, um, a false event. So anyhow, just to preface that for those are, I think we're not, you know, very good patriots. Mm. Um, yeah. That, uh, so Dave wanted, who's your age, um, and a friend of Timmy's sisters comes, he tells us his story. He says, Hi. I said, how'd you get out of the draft? He says, I bought all these old clothes at Goodwill. I put charcoal on my face. I made myself look really messy. Didn't take a shower for a couple of days. And then I went in there acting like I was a homeless person. And I just muttered a lot. And I, and I used it as an example. So I did the exact same thing, except I stayed up all night. And I had a couple of my friends like, try to keep me up, you know. And so I go in there and um, I think... You know, I went there, had to go back twice. Well, once, I think I refused to take the shower. They took showers there. I don't know why. <laughs> so maybe, uh, you know, my memory is false. But then when I was going there and take a shower or whatever. So, so I got out that time. Um, and they just thought I was, like, handicapped mentally or something. <laughs> and they gave me a one year's deference. And I went back again. And this time, back in those days, um, you you couldn't be gay and get in you know and oh, right. being gay you know the stigma of gayness back back then so i i did a similar thing but didn't stay up all night that was too much trouble for me and um a friend of me from, from high school saw me there and i said don't no, be quiet don't yeah. I don't, <laughs> don't say hello to me you know but anyhow i said um I said, maybe that was the time they asked me to take a shower. And I said, I'm not taking a shower. I just mumbled and whispered this with my head down like I was troubled. I said, because why, why? I said, well, I'm gay, which means, kind of doesn't make sense. Maybe I would want to take a shower if I was gay. I don't know. Yeah, right. like, uh, so, um, so they put me in a, uh, I had, since the first time I got a little stack of letters. I went to psychiatrists and psychologists they have to write you a letter, even if you only see them once. And in the army or anywhere, they don't look to see how many times you went. They just see like you went there five times. You went to different doctors, so I'd go to different doctors for a day. And and then this, and then then some of them saw my scam that I was just like trying to get a letter. But legally, I think they had to write me a letter. So when they had this little stack of letters, they kind of looked even bother looking at it. They asked me the same question: Why didn't you want to take a shower or get examined or whatever it was? And I just mumbled 
I'm gay. And, they, mm. and I, I finally got a 4F. Well, I just thought the weird irony of this, I tried, before, before I even knew how, that I, my injury would get me out, uh, I, I applied as a conscientious objector. And that, uh, that went through a period of like six months, <laughs> six went, months with the, with the Quakers helping me. And uh, I think this it, is, I know you want to like hold and like edit this. But you have to get this? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, oh, anyway, so the short version is just, I, I had to appear before like six uniformed guys with all of those the epaulets and the whole army thing, a major and a lieutenant and a captain and interviewing me. And the, and the big trick question is, you know, if somebody, if, if a bunch of thugs came into your house with weapons and said, we're going to kill your parents, <laughs> of course they didn't know what. My parents were, you know, and you had a, you had a way you could, you could kill them. Wouldn't you kill them? And of course the real question, the real answer would probably be no, but, um, you know, but if you're a real pacifist, you would say no. Um, of course, oh no, I don't believe in killing. And then I'll say, oh, you'd let them murder your parents then or your brother or whatever it was. So they, that's the question they always use. So I, I, I failed after months and months of hearings that failed. I kind of resolved that I just have to go through this. And then they found that they said, stand up straight. And I said, I can't. And they go, why not? I was just used to being hunched over. And it's because I had this spinal injury. It, didn't you have to send, didn't you send a, le a letter to the s secretary of oh, the surgeon, member, right? sur surgeon general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, we sent a letter to the surgeon general to verify it, or they asked me to do that to have it verified. Anyway. Um, there's I went, more, to, yeah. I had to go to, I did the same thing, hoping to get out before I did all that weird dressing up and stuff. And again, with all the army guys with dad and um, before I go in, they say, this secretary here is going to take down notes. Is that okay? I said, sure. So while during the questioning, they say things like, is it true that you don't want to go to the army and have a gun because you, you you're, you're on the side of the communists and, oh, yeah. and there's no, as before, and I'd say, no, 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 I don't, I don't believe in killing. So they do these kind of questions over and over where they give the answer and then, and I give an answer too. And then at the end they say, well, we're, we're not going to give you the, the, um, you know, we're not going to let you out. A conscious, we're not going to qualify you as a conscientious objector because it says right here when, when we ask you, why don't you want to carry a gun? You said you'd rather be with the communists. Oh. And I said, I didn't say that. I didn't yeah. say that. You said that. And they said, well, it says it right here. Oh, and yeah. This kind of sort of fascist thing it was like so horrible that this is my government's doing these kind of things they, they do in Russia or someplace. They're doing this back in, you know, 1968, you know. Oh, and, yeah. And now, you know, that's it. Now it's a technique. It's sort of like when you know what, you know, what prisoner wars, prisoners of war go through when they're interrogated. I felt like, is that, Oh, you'd let them kill your mother. Oh, that's, that's some, uh, you know, you, some moral character you have there, you know, and then, Oh no, I shoot the bad guys. Oh, so you would shoot somebody that's threatening you. And I go, well, the Vietnamese are not threatening me or my mother, you know, but it was a circular argument. Um, right. This is a total different topic, but do you, do you have any rem memories of Mark's Place East? Remember the disco on Mark's Place? Do you remember yeah, that? I used to go there a lot. You know, the only thing was that one time this guy, I sat at a table, like a two-person table, and this guy told me he, he just got out of prison. And then at one point he asked me if he want, I wanted to dance with him. <laughs> I said, I guess because he's probably used to that. In prison. Yeah. I said... <laughs> 
I didn't do any dancing in prison. But, you know. Well, I moved. I moved yeah. from that table. Other than that, I remember like the band, you know, our, the band we had that you managed, Super Solo. We set up there and played like for a video or whatever of that was. Oh. I'm not really clear, but yeah. Yeah, it was kind of an infamous. I don't have any real memories of it. I mean, other than I think it had a pad. It had one of those things where the carpeting went up the walls, and and you know it had beanbag chairs, and it was just meant to be. You know, I mean, it was a real, it was Mark Kaufman who was a real hustler and it worked for a while. Um, I mean, it was a thing, it was right upstairs on Main Street. I went to, a lot, I went to it a lot. I'd go there every Friday, oh. Saturday night. Yeah. Um, the only other, well, the workplace thing and it's, um, was fun for me. Anyway, to witness was, I, I worked at the Carousel Toy Shop, which was in the, shopping trader joe shopping center I, I don't know what shop what what's there now what took in that general location it was sort of in the middle so it's probably soul cycle now or something but it was a really upscale toy store which i really like working in and next door was a luncheonette called morris's luncheonette and this guy morris was right out of central casting do you remember yeah i remember him yeah remember him he, he sort of had reddish hair and your big almost, black glasses, like yeah, a, like a Hollywood agent or something. It, exactly, yeah. He, he was such a stereotype, but he was a nasty. So we go in, and I worked with this guy John Lepla, who was at Roger Ludlow High, and the two of us delivered swing sets and set them up in people's backyards, and we got along great, even though he was a he was a, a juvenile delinquent, <laughs> but uh, but he was really nice to me, and we got along great. But, and he drove a motorcycle to work and he always got in arguments with Morris. And Morris is always yelling at him, I think, because John wore a leather jacket. He was kind of the Fonzie of his time, way before Fonzie. And uh, Morris hated it when he came into the diner and our back doors were side by side. So John, let, and one time Morris really just let him have it, you know, and so John comes back, his face is all red. He says, you have to help me. And I go, what, what? And he goes, okay, open, hold open Morris's back door and John had a Harley then and he revved it up and he I held open Morris's back door and John rode his motorcycle through the through this little luncheonette I mean it wasn't a big dining room it's just a luncheonette like a counter with yeah, narrow, like a narrow yeah boom like a what a narrow space like yeah very narrow yeah anyway it was just a thrill to watch this was like out of again it was like that's a, a real fonzie that is a fonzie it is a fonzie thing <laughs> if i hadn't been there i would have dismissed it as just urban legend but he it filled the place with exhaust and he was fired after that but it was well worth it i mean he yeah, right. went over to the carousel and said your guy just drove his motorcycle to my luncheon and drove everybody out that you want to talk about um because i always thought this was fascinating Fascinating when those guys wanted to murder you. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I don't. Am I netting it out? People, I, I still wonder about that. No, I used to get when I was married, and I had a big telephone answering machine. In those days, they, they were the size of a suitcase, and I'd come check my messages. And for a couple of weeks, this guy, these messages were "Migs must die, Migs must die, Migs must die" in a real nasty voice, like "Migs must die, Migs is gonna die." And, you know, and then I called the police and they said, well, does anybody hurt you? No. And, you know, we can't do anything. You haven't been, we can't, I said, can't you tap the phone? No, we need a court order. There's not enough to get a court order, blah, blah, blah. So this went on. Then it stopped finally. And I don't know how many months went by, maybe a couple of years. And I get a phone call from some kid uh, who says, I have to meet you. 
it's urgent. And I go, well, who are you? What's this all about? And um, he said, I can't tell you. I have to meet you in person. I can't tell you over the phone because you, you, you won't meet me then. And I said, um, she's... <laughs> so anyway, um, so I arranged... So I arranged to meet him in a public space like noon at Dunkin' Donuts on the Post Road in Norwalk. I don't know why there, but... And this young kid comes over to my car. I said, what car I'd be in. He's telling me what car he'd be in. I see him coming over to my window. He's really young, probably 16 or 17. And he says he's in AA and one of his, whatever the steps you have to take was to make amends. And he's, and I said, well, I don't even know you. What amends? And he goes, well, my friend and I were planning to kill you. And I left messages on your answering machine that we're going to kill you. And I went, oh my God, and there was such good closure, the fact that, and then I asked a question I never thought I'd hear myself ask was, why didn't you kill me? I mean, what <laughs> <you know? laughs> Not hoping that he would, but what, what, how did it end? Why did it not end with my death? I mean, yeah. thankfully it did. And he said, we were, we were always getting high and, and drinking, and we saw your picture in the paper. We were looking for somebody to kill. We just wanted a thrill kill. We wanted to know what it felt like to kill somebody. And we, we saw your picture. It was very arbitrary. And we, and we said, okay, let, and we found out where you lived. We actually found out your address. But every time we went to do it, we were too drunk. And we couldn't even get to our, we were fall down drunk. We couldn't even get to our car to do it. And um, then I got into AA and uh, he said I wanted to make amends for that. And I got his name and his address and his phone number just in case, and that was probably 20 years ago and nothing ever happened since. Yeah. But it was, it's weird knowing that, that, that somewhere out there somebody was, and that's, you think about murders that happened for no reason, and. Yeah, the, I've heard of those kind of things, I'm crazy. You know, I went in there for no reason, slit someone's throat because they're nuts, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and right. I mean, there's deliberate murders, domestic violence, that type of thing. But, you know, out there somewhere right now is somebody planning to kill somebody for no good reason other than the thrill of it or whatever. So I think we're, our time's up, and um, we'll just see how this works out. I'm hoping it recorded. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we're on, oh, did we mention we're on iTunes? And if you have, download the Apple Podcast app. And just search for Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast. And we're on the app, and I think we have 10 podcasts now. So we've been certified, authorized, and um, we're, we're a certified Apple podcast now. <laughs>